Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, social worker Saima Khan, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Heidi Burns, and nurse practitioner Dr. Christina Swiner. Today, we are joined by Dr. Michelle Monroe-Kramer and Professor Bridget Carr to focus on the interventions and resources for individuals who have experienced or are experiencing human trafficking. Professor Carr, we have talked a lot about human trafficking over the past two episodes. Could you talk a little bit about what interventions are available once a patient or an individual has been identified as being trafficked? So I wish I could tell you that there were a thousand things available in support for trafficking victims. And there are some things, right? There are some things. But in general, it's sort of the same menu of choices that you have uh, in any case involving some type of abuse or violence or harm. Now, with one really powerful asterisk, that many, many victims of human trafficking, whether it's because they're foreign nationals and they don't have permission to be in the United States, or if they are people involved in the commercial sex industry and they're viewed as criminals by the legal system, they are at risk of being arrested or deported when or if you reach out to involve law enforcement. Now, this represents a really significant quandary for healthcare providers because in many states, including Michigan, there are mandatory reporting requirements that uh, do exactly what they say. They mandate that you report cases of human trafficking in certain situations. So in Michigan, those situations are for minors and for um, adults only if they would otherwise meet the criteria of being a vulnerable adult. There is no special sort of you have to report um, an adult victim of human trafficking if they don't otherwise meet that criteria. But there's a risk that when you make that report, if that report gets in the hands of law enforcement, uh, or if you all engage law enforcement more directly, that uh, trafficking victims could be harmed. I think what I would add to that is that the interventions are very siloed. Um, So I think Bridget talked a lot about kind of the criminal legal system, um, whereas if someone needs health care, they would, you know, kind of piece together health care in whatever manner they could. If they needed shelter, um, the shelter is really variable, um, you know, depending um, on the community. Some domestic violence agencies, the way they receive their funding, they're pretty strict about who can use shelter there. That means male survivors of human trafficking often cannot. Um, There are many faith-based organizations that have created um, housing situations. Um, Sometimes they're they're termed like rehabilitation centers where they provide services. Again, they're they're very individualized depending on who has created them. Um, And I think the other thing we don't focus on is that a lot of human trafficking survivors do want some sort of job skills training and and thinking about like job placement. Um, And again, you're kind of piecing those resources together based on what already exists. So as Bridget already said, I think the big piece is that it's very siloed and you have to work with the survivor to figure out what they want and try to access those resources. I also think it's important that before you experience a case of trafficking, that you've talked to your team, whoever that is, if it's a big team, if you're in a big medical system or a smaller team, because I think you need to know whether your local shelter, like who they are going to take in. You need to know, you know, like because the human trafficking clinic, you know, represents survivors all over the state, we know which counties will uh, take 
uh, individuals who've been sex trafficked into their domestic violence shelter. And we know which counties won't. And so, and we know that in Kalamazoo, the Y has uh, a shelter that will take in um, men and families. And so there are more options there. So I think no one listening to this podcast is going to know all those things that we that we know. So it's really important to know what's available in your community, just like you have to know that for someone who's a um, survivor of another type of violence. But the other piece is to know that there is a national human trafficking hotline. It's 1-888-3737-888. And you can, it's a resource line as well as a line for survivors to call. And so you can call and get information about what's available in your community. And so uh, they, you know, they try to keep track of who's serving, you know, what types of survivors. The other piece in that is uh, Michelle was very gracious in how she said that, um, that there are organizations who open up shelters. I think there's just a lot of people who realize that there are dollars to be had if you say you're serving trafficking survivors, and not all of those people actually know what to do with those dollars, and not all those people should be getting those dollars. Uh, And lots of folks will say that they're running a shelter for trafficking survivors, and then you say, okay, can I place my adult male client there? Well, no, it's only for women. And then you say, okay, can I place my foreign national client there? Well, no, it's only for U.S. citizens. Okay, can can I place this 17-year-old? Well, no, it's only for adults. Okay, so can I place this 22-year-old who, you know, has just uh, come to our office? Uh, Well, does she have a substance use disorder? Well, yes. Well, no. Then you can't place her here. And I'm like... Who are you taking exactly? You are taking, right, the the movie version of who a trafficking survivor is, and so um, it can be it can be very hard to 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 find the sports, just like it's hard for other types of violence. And I would just reinforce that National Human Trafficking Hotline that Bridget expertly recited um, is a resource for anybody. So you could be a friend, you could be a family member, you could be a healthcare provider, you could be a survivor. Um, but they really they're they're there to provide resources to absolutely anyone. I think we've touched on this a little bit, but is there any differences between the pediatric populations and adult populations between resources that are available? Yes. Lots of differences, just like in non-trafficking situations, right? We have a child welfare system, you know, in every state. And uh, so certain minors can be put in that system and receive support. Uh, I will just flag <laughs> that uh, in Michigan, uh, many people think that children, those under the age of 18, will be treated as survivors if they are sold for sex. And that's not actually the state of our law. So it is a requirement that all healthcare providers report uh, human trafficking of minors. However, the state of the law in Michigan is that if you are 16 or 17 years old and you are being sold for sex, you are presumed, note a presumption can always be overturned, overturned, but you are presumed to be a victim of trafficking as long as, quote, you substantially comply with court-ordered services, end quote, which means your victimization is based on your obedience and not your exploitation, which means (laughs) that if you are, you know, what folks might want to call a bad kid or a kid who makes choices that those in power don't agree with, you can be charged for prostitution even if you are being sold as a sex trafficking victim. So I just think it's very important to understand that despite much of the popular and political rhetoric around trafficking, we have yet to truly move in the state or really nationally to recognize that these are folks 
who are truly victims, which is actually why I use the word victim often instead of survivor, because it's not like I disempower survivors. It's that we are often in a fight for our clients' lives to get them viewed as victims within the criminal legal system and not criminals. I have one thing to add after that, which is, and I take a lot of heat about this recommendation from government officials at times, but if I was advising someone who was faced with a 16 and 17-year-old who could be labeled a sex trafficking survivor, I would want them to think about using another label, sexual assault, IPV, whatever other label attaches, because the likelihood of that person being arrested down the line is so much lower if we take the commercial aspect out of the exploitation. And it's and, and adding it in doesn't gain them a huge amount of resources or maybe any. And so I encourage folks to be thoughtful, to talk to the lawyers in their healthcare systems and say, what do we do about that 16, 17-year-old? Can we categorically refer all these cases um, under a sexual assault reporting framework? because we don't give every single label for everything we turn in, right? We don't say this is IPV and this is child abuse and this is sexual assault and this is statutory rape and this, we, we don't do that. And so there's there's no reason within the human trafficking framework that we have to either. And often how a case is framed initially is how it is seen forever. And so if you can help that 16 or 17 year old with that initial framing so that she is not viewed as a prostitute, Right, that's how people are viewing these clients. Um, if if you can help that child, maybe you can prevent their arrest down the road. And I would just add, so the the obligation, the mandatory reporting for children follows, you know, the obligation as it would with anything, right? So sexual assault, abuse in the home, whatever. You're making the report the exact same way. You're filling out the same paperwork. You're following it up in exactly the same way. And so I, I agree that we need to think a little less about labels. It's kind of the same thing as, you know, we require a disclosure. We don't need to require a disclosure, right? We don't need to label somebody. We need to have a suspicion that something is happening to them in order to make that mandatory report. I really appreciate you guys pointing that out. And we actually talk um, a little bit in our next episode, our final episode of the season, about child protective services and what to include in those reports. And you'll hear more about this in the next episode, but kind of keeping it a little vague and just saying, I have concerns for, um, you know, sexual abuse or some exploitation and not giving it, you know, these definitive terms and letting that um CPS, that Child Protective Service worker, really do their investigation and see how we can help those children, I think is a good step in protecting these children and um, vulnerable people. And, you know, when we call APS, I think the same thing would be um, warranted in those reports as well. And at, at the University of Michigan, we also have, you know, a legal team that can help answer some of these questions as well and guide us um, as well. So thank you for that that framework for this. Resources are ever-changing, but what are some of the good resources that we do have to provide to patients when we're concerned about human trafficking? 
So we've already talked about the National Human Trafficking Hotline. We've also created a website, uh, humantrafficking.umich.edu, that was created primarily for healthcare providers, although it has information that's really relevant to anybody. And the goal with this website was to provide some samples. So what are what does human trafficking look like? So there are sample cases. Um, what would a good policy look like in a healthcare system? How can we emulate policies that we already have in place for child maltreatment, intimate partner violence, sexual assault that we're familiar and comfortable with um, to encompass human trafficking? Um, we have information on continuing education, um, and we have a lot of facts. So so trying to displace some of those those myths that are continually perpetuated. The other thing we've included is some videos with survivors um, from the state of Michigan. So a foreign national labor trafficking survivor um, and then a um, sex trafficking survivor who um, entered the sex trafficking actually as a minor. And so this conversation about, I think she was around 16, 15, 16, about around this age group is really relevant. Um, but they say what they want from healthcare providers, which I think to me is one of the most important things. They had both had numerous interactions with the healthcare system. They had not been identified. They had been mistreated. They had been labeled as a prostitute. Um, you know, there were there was clearly bias in some of those interactions. And so just them telling their story, I think, is really a powerful way to understand what's happening in the healthcare system when we don't always see it around us happening um, or even things that we're doing on our own. Uh, so that's another really useful resource to get information that you can continue to come back to. Now, both of you have referenced that resources are often like piecemeal um, and depending on what the individual needs. And thinking about survivors of human trafficking in general, are there like categories that you think of, oh, this person may need connections with the, the food bank? And like when you're working with somebody, are there certain, I guess, categories that you guys discuss connecting these individuals with? So housing is a huge one. I, I mean, you know, we've talked before about that vulnerability can cut across socioeconomic status. It can be the PhD student or it can be sort of someone who's homeless. But in reality, the majority of the cases look more like the person who is closer to being homeless than the PhD student. And so housing is huge, both both housing in the moment, meaning like where is that person going to sleep tonight a and longer term, sometimes mental health supports, you know, Lots of times vulnerabilities arise because of mental health issues, but then they also are created uh, during the exploitation and economic access, right? <laughs> Human trafficking is about work. Right? This is about people profiting off of other people's vulnerabilities. And so most of my clients need jobs and uh, they want jobs that are good and that can support them. And and so uh, all those things on top of you know healthcare and often legal services. But I, I think mostly about the, you know, where are they going to sleep? How are they going to eat? And how are they going to take care of themselves? And I think their needs, the needs might change over time. And so I think when we conceptualize human trafficking survivors, we think of that immediate time period when they've been identified. We want to provide them support and resources, um, but they'll be human trafficking survivors their entire life. Um, and so those mental health concerns may continue to follow them. Um, I know Bridget's Clinic does a lot of work with individuals who are trying to get a record expunged to get into an educational program, right? Um, so that's a situation where their experience of trafficking has continued to follow them and they continue to need resources and it changes over time depending on what's happening in their life. 
For sure. A number of years ago, there was a change in Michigan's law that allowed human trafficking survivors to expunge or erase, as sort of a layperson's version, certain crimes, mostly prostitution crimes, that w- occurred while they were being trafficked. Essentially, someone forced you to do this, and so you can erase these. We were fully prepared in the trafficking clinic to get calls from people in their 20s and 30s. The majority of those calls, those first few weeks, were from women in their 60s, right? Who some who had retired already, who right, like had already dealt with this being on their record for jobs or volunteering in their kids' school or trying to find housing. But I just I think about that all the time. So I'm so glad Michelle raised it. You know, we are so often focused on that time of being victimized or those moments right after rescue. And I just I, I can see her in my mind's eye, this woman, the first one who called us in her mid sixties. And I think yeah, she has, I mean, she has literally carried this as part of her legal record this entire time. I'm kind of just speechless right now. So um, that's a lot. Um, it's really shaped these individuals' lives. But I, I, but I also think it, it shows the power of the stigma of the commercial sex industry and that traffickers can take advantage of that, right? Because, you know, traffickers will talk about how sometimes they put – uh, people out on street corners to get arrested because they know that once that arrest record exists, you are even that much more vulnerable, right? And so we often think, oh, traffickers wouldn't want you know their people arrested, but actually, get them arrested, bail them out, then they have a record. They're not going to be able to go to Meyer and get a job really easily. You know that that kind of makes a lot of sense, and it seems like. Once these individuals are out of these bad situations, that these traffickers are still holding power over them because they have these records. It has changed the path of their life. Look, if we think that trafficking is only about traffickers making choices to exploit people, we are ignoring how our society makes people vulnerable. And if we don't attack and address some of those core vulnerabilities, then the, you know, if you will, like the ecosystem that makes it ripe to traffic people will still exist. You know, if 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 that criminal record did not hold that stigma, did not follow that per- person around for, you know, 40 some years in the case of my client, then the power of that trafficker is taken away. I think also reflecting on, you know, maybe potential some bias in there of who's able to access kind of those types of supports and be able to expunge that record, right? We, we kind of, again, are just thinking of, oh, minors, you know, they didn't consent. So, but right, there are probably a lot of young adults or even older adults that have had this experience that maybe the law just hasn't caught up. And maybe there's a role for advocacy. Is there anything you'd like to reflect on advocacy that healthcare providers could engage in to kind of help, you know, with their patients or the families that they work with? So I think I, I just want to say that your point is so right on. Most people don't know that I I think it's until 2014, the prostitution laws in Michigan were written as such that only women could be charged with prostitution. So we have represented a number of men uh, who are victims of sex trafficking, but the expungement laws, the erasure laws, don't actually technically help them because the laws are only designed to erase the prostitution laws, but that's not what the men were charged with. So, right, so like this group and access and how we do it and how we think about it. But from an advocacy perspective, and I, I say this to healthcare providers all the time, I would love to see healthcare providers putting pressure. Um, you know, I can't lobby as um, a member of the Michigan faculty, but I can educate. And I love trying to teach healthcare 
care providers say, you know what? Talk to the groups you're a part of. Are you part of a nursing group? Are you a part of a physician's group? Are you a part like do they have a presence in Lansing? Tell the legislators that you should not be required to mandatorily report human trafficking survivors who could be at risk of arrest. You have skin in this game as mandatory reporters. Say you cannot put this on us. There has to be immunity for 16 and 17 year olds or that cannot be part of the mandatory report structure. And that voice has, you know, like I haven't heard it in Lansing. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've, I utterly fail trying to understand how to get things passed in Lansing. So maybe this is bad advice, but, but I think, I think there really is something to say. I think the other thing to say is, you know what, we as healthcare providers need evidence, right? Like Michelle and I are sitting here today saying there's no evidence-based this, there's no validated screening that. And there's a reason for that because there's not funding attached to do those things. Because right now, if I get up in front of an audience and tell the saddest, most you know, tear-inducing story about a child victim of sex trafficking who was snatched from a parking lot, which means it's not even true, I'll get a lot of dollars. Right. So I'm not inclined to 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 lobby for funding that's attached to like getting evidence, validating things. And so we've got to do that. We've got to do that, and I, and I hope that healthcare can, providers can be part of the push to say we need this to be more robust. We need this to have data. We you know we need to support support it that way. I think that getting evidence that advocacy looks a little different too. I mean, it's participating, it's trying out some of these tools, it's being willing to to collect some of that data and evidence, um, and even thinking about how it fits in different systems. Right, like a lot of these tools we talked about are paper-based. They don't fit in electronic medical records. Like, How do we make that switch and make something that works? Um, so it can go to identifying um, survivors. It can go to the policy piece. And then I think it's also advocating for the patients, right? Um, so again, that safe space, what do they need now? How can you create those networks so you know who to connect them with when they need shelter? Maybe they have to go all the way to the west side of the state, but you need to have kind of that groundwork in place before a survivor you know, shows up in your exam room or an emergency room and you're not sure what to do with them. The other place for advocacy, you know, I think in Ann Arbor, um, we are pretty lucky because we have the the human trafficking clinic and we, we talk about this issue. But in other parts of the state and the nation, I think human trafficking survivors are treated much differently by law enforcement. Um, and so it's advocating and having those conversations with local law enforcement, especially in more rural or under-resourced areas where they may not be talking about this issue or even have a lot of resources um, to, to support their law enforcement. Kind of switching gears just a little bit. So oftentimes, um, if there is concern for trafficking, let's say in an adult patient, they may choose not to disclose or to return to that situation. Um, what do you tell providers who are distressed by this decision? I, I tell them it is hard, but that's also our job. Like, uh, they say to me, you don't know what it's like to sit across from someone who will go and leave the exam room and get into a car with a trafficker. And I say, yes, actually, I do. I sit across from my clients sometimes who I know their trafficker is waiting in the car outside. You know, we don't help trafficking survivors by disempowering them. You know, I've had providers call me and say, I have someone in the exam room. They're not accepting. You know, they don't want the help. But I know they're going back to the trafficker. Should I put a 24-hour, uh, you all know, the like mental hold on them? And uh, while inside I'm screaming, no, I then try to say, would you do this to someone who was a victim of sexual assault? 
if there was no money involved, if this was not a commercial transaction. And generally, I mean, I, I will own that. I had one person say yes, I would. So that is a, a whole other podcast. Um, but uh, most say I would not. I said, then we don't hear. I mean, I, th- I think we have this happen with all types of different uh, interactions and illnesses. We have many patients that unfortunately don't um, necessarily follow recommended advice or, or come back for a treatment. Um, and there's not a lot we can do there. And so it's very similar to other forms of um, interpersonal violence. It's similar to these other you know, disease states and illnesses we see that it's ultimately up to the patient and the individual. And honestly, they know what's safest and best for them at that time. And so there are circumstances and situations situations where it may not be safe for a survivor to leave their trafficker and us putting a hold on them or trying to force them to do that um, isn't necessarily going to help anybody. And so I would just reiterate that Again, the goal is not for healthcare providers to investigate and get a disclosure. It's to be that safe, supportive place where somebody can come back to when it is safe or when they are ready, um, as opposed to them feeling pressured and just kind of hopping around to different health systems and different providers. We've talked a lot about the control in these situations and the power dynamic. And so I think as healthcare providers, we really want to be salient about that power dynamic and to not replicate it within the healthcare system again, right? And to take that power again away from these individuals and rather to find ways to help support them and empower them to feel safe, hopefully maybe in a future interaction, to disclose and take those steps to maybe access the supports that are available to them. Absolutely. So one question that I had is, you know, are there any special considerations that providers should be aware of when caring for a trafficked individual? I mean, I think, you know, we ta- we've we talked a little about trauma-informed care. I personally think that applies to any type of patient, um, but can obviously be particularly salient with someone who's experienced um, human trafficking. And the truth is, we don't know the trauma that many of our patients have experienced. So that trauma-informed care, that patient-centered, so allowing them to make the choices. And, you know, their first concern might be a job when they have some type of health issue that we think is of, you know, paramount importance but really letting them drive the show um, because they, I mean, they're in charge of their bodies. They need that power back. And again, they might know what's safest or best for them at that time. I mean, I think the the other piece is thinking about how to remain in contact with them. So, um, you know, scheduling a repeat visit just for a check-in, a lot of times it may not be safe to do like a video or a telephone visit, which is what we've moved to a lot during COVID. Um, So thinking about how you can stay connected with those patients, and it might be a little atypical, right? You might have the five or 10 minute visit where you just physically check in with them and see them and see what they need um, and go from there. And so, just being creative. I mean, I think the other piece we talk about it is finding a safe space for them. And we haven't really talked about this here, but getting someone alone and, and trying to talk to them can be extremely difficult. And so, um, you know, having uh, something like you always take them to the bathroom or you always have the the person checking them in, ask questions of the person with them, but thinking about what you can do to make their lives a little easier so they can talk to you and get the resources and support they need. Yeah, I think the other piece is just to remember that as a society, we haven't decided to support vulnerable people. And the reason I say that is because it always feels like with so much focus on identifying victims of human trafficking and training on trafficking and human trafficking awareness, that what well, must mean that if we do the identifying and we do the training and we and and we do the assessments, that there is some support waiting for us on the other end. 
And the answer is often there's not. And so I, I really I really worry that we are overpromising and way under delivering. And so because what most communities have is what they have for other folks who are vulnerable, maybe homeless, who've been harmed by violence. And so, you know, and for some communities, that means some support, right, with some options. Other communities, it means very little. And so I just never want to make folks think that if they somehow can, you know, pull out that trafficking label and make it attach, right, that if we focus so much on disclosure, as you keep saying, Michelle, that, that you know, this magical confetti of resources and funding and support and guidance is going to rain down on them because it just doesn't happen. And I think we see that a lot with anything we deal with, with trauma and mental health. And I mean, how many times do we meet with patients and families and we identify what's going on? This is a eating disorder. But, you know, I live in the UP. What can you do to help me? Oh, I'm sorry. Like, there's nothing there. You have to drive eight hours to get care. And it's sad. We, we've focused a lot on diagnoses and evaluation and assessment but we haven't put in the the prevention or the the aftercare almost into our system. Right. And and that is not healthcare providers fault, right? That is our that's all of us. Right? It's our entire society. But I mean, you know, the some of the hardest phone calls for me that I get at the clinic will be a parent and they will be just so in anguish and they will tell me about their child, often, you know, a, a teenage girl who they believe is a sex trafficking victim. And I listen and I say, maybe. I say, or they're a runaway, right? But runaways are at risk. But then I say, you know, I don't know. But even if I could say to you, your daughter is a sex trafficking victim, it doesn't actually change. Like, there's no special SWAT team I can call that will go get her. There's no, you know, there. You, you know, wh- where is their magic with that labeling? Honestly, for foreign nationals who've been victims of human trafficking, who are in deportation proceedings or who need immigration relief, there is some magic that can happen there. But that's like so embedded and way down the line. But in those moments of crisis, we want support. There's no magic yet there. I mean, and that's globally. There are many healthcare providers around the world that are hesitant to screen for different forms of violence because they don't have anything to offer. There's no resources. There's no support. So it's more about how do you keep them safe where they're at, right? And I mean, I think here and and around the world, we need to think about that a little bit more. How how do we continue to provide the supports, especially if we are training healthcare providers and teaching them about this topic and how to ask these questions um, if we don't have the support to provide after? And I think a lot of this discussion is very chilling and, you know, might might feel um, disempowering, but it's... I'm finding it actually empowering in a lot of ways as a provider to sort of allow myself to realize that that's the truth and then think about those small ways that you can provide that safe landing place for the people that you see day to day and the maybe small ways that you can be an advocate, you can get involved, you know, and and I think it's very empowering to think about what organization can I get in, you know, and do something related to this? What can I do, you know, sort of in my clinic or in my day to day that 
educates me on some of the resources that are local that I might be able to kind of put into place. So I think this discussion has been really helpful for for that. Um, you know, I think a lot of providers feel that pressure and, you know, don't know what to do. And I think talking about the fact that the system is flawed is really important. But it's also, you know, meaningful to have interactions as small as they may be with, with some of these survivors and, and, you know, just be a sounding board for them, be someone who's listening, somebody who's caring. Look, if you can make the person in front of you feel seen and heard and that they are a human being that deserves care, you are doing the heavy lifting of anti-trafficking work. Because for traffickers to be successful, humans have to be turned into commodities. And all too often in our society, we all agree to that deal. Before we start wrapping up for this episode, I was kind of curious, Professor Carr, about your clinic, if you could share a little bit about that. Sure. So I often call the clinic my first baby. (laughs) So I started it in 2009 and really started it not um, knowing what I know now, meaning I'd been representing survivors of trafficking within the construct of immigration clinics. And I thought, gosh, they have tons of legal needs that are not just immigration-based, and I want to serve U.S. citizens. And so I thought to myself, wouldn't it be awesome to have a legal clinic? And for those of you who don't know, a legal clinic is a place, it's kind of like residency. Um, It's a place where students get to practice being a lawyer while also providing free and excellent legal services. And they practice under their professor's bar license. And But when I do my job right as a clinical professor, I'm invisible to my clients. So the client has a relationship with the student. And then the student has a relationship with me. And so the clinic launched. And what I didn't realize what that meant, though, is that we were offering ourselves to be a full-service legal office for a population, right? And quickly learned how trafficking touched upon tax issues and child custody and um, identity theft and, like, all sorts of things that I never knew I would have to, to learn about. But the students in the clinic are magic. I mean... They remind me that things we think aren't possible often are, that when we show up and we care deeply and we push systems, sometimes you win. And that, you know, I'll never forget, I had this client who testified, she was one of my first clients, she testified before Congress about um, that her, right now, the way the law was structured, her mother was not allowed to come into the U.S., And based in part on her testimony, they changed the law. And I thought, gosh, what a victory for that client. But the two students um, who were assigned her case to do other things that semester came to me and said, you know what? I think that law can be used retroactively to apply to her. I said, I don't think so. But you know what? Like, convince me. Uh, Don't tell the client because we don't want to raise hopes. But okay, so they convinced me. I thought, okay, well, let's try. Uh, We did it. The the week before, and we we're on this huge time crunch because of immigration laws is a disaster. And so we just had a certain number of days we could still try to do this. They got it in and the the um, client's mother arrived uh, three days before she gave birth to um, her first child. And I remember getting a call from a government official and she, and I don't usually get these calls. And she said, I worked on that case for your client. And I said, yeah, we were really excited. Uh, do you know that she testified before Congress? And she said, yes. And she said, did you know she was the first one who received relief under this new law? 
I said, I didn't. Like, and so it was just, it was like just this beautiful moment of the student seeing a possibility I had foreclosed upon in my mind and the magic of, of, you know, their energy and their ambition and their belief uh, and and the power of the law to still do good. I mean, I think right now we're in a cultural moment where we can see so much of the law's failings. And, I, you know, I personally feel it in my body, <laughs> so much of the law's failings. And yet there are still moments where it's still a superpower. So I love the clinic for that. I love, I love uh, how we can show up for people, how we can take time for people, and uh, hopefully how we can move the needle a bit. Can I add something about your clinic? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just say when I met Bridget and was learning about the clinic, I mean, the, the length of time that um, some of these clients are with the clinic to meet all of their needs is astonishing. Like, this isn't just like, oh, I have this, this one legal issue. We're going to fix it in a semester or two with this group of students. This is like a five to seven year commitment that the clinic is making to help this person get through this legal issue that also, you know, is usually correlated with another one and reach out to healthcare providers about the healthcare needs that come up along the way and connect with social work about, you know, the other needs. So um, I think that we focus a lot on the legal aspect of the clinic, but it really becomes this partnership to meet the the long-term needs of survivors over time. Thanks, Michelle. And if providers or people would like to find your clinic, um, where should they look? What so there's number a link to it. Or, yeah. yeah, there's a link to it on the Human Trafficking Collaborative website, which is, Michelle, you're better at this. <laughs> which is humantrafficking.umich.edu. Yes. And so uh, there's a link to the clinic there. And there's no physical space to the clinic. It is a, it's a virtual it's not a walk. I mean, we have physical space for us, but it's yeah. not a walk-in sort of storefront space. Thank you so much for sharing that information. It just kind of, I think, touches back to, you know, I think one of the things that you guys shared of, of really using that team-based approach and recognizing that one person may not hold all the resources. And so we really need to capitalize on other people's expertise and kind of identifying some of those housing resources, connecting them to the mental health supports, and really recognizing that each person on that team has something to share. And we really want to take their perspectives, too, when we're developing our own hospital policies or our unit policies or, or when we have discussions about human trafficking that we're not forgetting about the different people in different settings. You know, are we ensuring that our environmental services staff are aware of these, you know, um, individuals and how can they support us as well and that we need to do this on multiple levels and, you know, thinking outside of, you know, the health system and, and recognizing there's things like the clinic available too for us and for support, the human trafficking hotline. And so kind of knowing that those are available to us. Are there any other thoughts that either of you want to share before we close today? Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I think this is um, a really great way to talk about this topic um, and kind of demystify some of the things we may have learned from the movie Taken that aren't necessarily true. Um, so really appreciate you giving us this time and space. Thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate your expertise and your time. Thank you to our audience who tuned in this week. Nurses, social workers, and physicians can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. We hope that you will join us next time.